From Relay FM, this is Flashback. This season, we are looking at the rise and fall of IBM's personal computer business. My name is Quinn Nelson, and I am joined by my bilingual Spanish-speaking co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett, or should I say, El Señor Esteban Hackett. ¿Cómo estás? Uh, de nada. <laughs> I did real poorly in Spanish in school. You're, you're, already, you're already halfway there. Well, you know, Spanish is a hard language. It's uh, one of the closest to English, and they, you know, they say it only takes a couple months to learn, but it's a lie. It takes like at least three months to learn, maybe four. My wife, my wife is fluent. You guys could talk about me in Spanish in front of me, and I would have no idea what's happening. Why is this what we're doing? Is this because I counted us in to record in Spanish? Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I did it. it just... Yeah, for those listeners, yeah, I mean, I guess they don't know the context. No. He he put on his Ricky Martin hat and went tres dos. Catorce. Wait, and, that's the U two song. And then he said go. <laughs> oh yeah, right, right, right. The wrong one, wrong one. Okay, that's the one that came for free on your iPod. <laughs> you know my Mac OS screenshot library thing I do. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen it, uh, all the iTunes images. That's the one album I keep in iTunes for that screenshot. No, oh, beautiful, beautiful. The free one they gave away. Okay, <laughs> IBM. <laughs> Oh, right, right, right. Let's go back to 1981. Uh, they're a company, right? I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Okay. Right, right. Okay. August 12th, 1981. Five years before I was born. <laughs> Approximately Ooh. 22 years before you were born. Yeesh. All right, that yeah. would make you like eight. 23, actually. <laughs> <laughs> IBM released the IBM personal computer after what is just an amazingly fast development time. We'll get into this, but I can't stress this enough. They built this computer effectively overnight. It's pretty crazy. So it's the early 80s, right? By 1980, IBM, as well as pretty much everyone, is aware that personal computers, they're more than just a fad, right? Um, the world had seen the rise of what would become known as the 1977 Trinity, which was made up of the Commodore PET, the Tandy Corporation's Radio Shack 80, and the Apple II, which were all released that year. And within just a few years, they really picked up a ton of storm. I mean, the original TRS-80 was incredibly inexpensive. Like, I think it retailed for $599. And even the Apple II was, you know, $1,200, $1,300. The Commodore Pet was in the middle. Computers were finally becoming accessible, and they were finally becoming approachable as well. I mean, most of them shipped with... um, you know, basic or a form of DOS. There there was no longer the need to enter machine language. I mean, they were getting to be digestible. And IBM, (laughs) again, they're this big corporation. We talked about it in the last episode. They are the name in the mainframe and with uh, kind of terminals inside of corporate offices and all this stuff. But they needed to to enter the home or at least the very, very small business market. But they had kind of already tried a little bit by the 1980s, right? Yeah, so in 1975, IBM had released the IBM 5100. There's not really much DNA shared between the 5100 and later efforts, but just so we cover it, uh, it was, if you Mm -hmm. think about like 1970s and 80s, like portable computers, that means it's 50 pounds, it had this super weird processor module. So once we get into the 80s, we're it's talking wild. about like microprocessors, right? That you put into a board. That's right. also what all the 1977 right. Trinity machines were built around. Yep. But IBM didn't have that. And so uh, Palm is what this was called. It was a 16-bit processor module 
but it was basically built across an entire circuit board. So it took up a lot of space. Uh, like we said, it was pretty big. It was pretty heavy, but it was completely self-enclosed and you could program on it directly without needing a larger system. So while the mainframes that IBM was selling were taking up whole rooms, they had multiple physical modules. This was all in one. It included a five inch CRT and a tape drive for saving and recalling programs. So it really was in the day, a portable or personal computer. Yeah, and and we'll leave a couple links in the show notes to this machine and pictures of it. It looks yeah. wild. I mean, it's it's crazy. Now, IBM would go on to make a couple of variants of the fifty one hundred, but they were really all aimed at office workers and engineers in the field, because it was a portable computer, but it wasn't a personal computer. The the prices were just too high. They were too heavy and bulky. And so only the the very, very wealthy and very, very enthused would think about getting a 5100 as a personal computer. So later on, IBM kind of attempts again um, in 1978. And it was basically the the system 23 data master this system combined a word and data processing kind of workflow into a single all-in-one machine and it included two eight inch floppy drives <laughs> i don't even know that i've ever seen an eight inch oh, yeah. floppy drive. very enormous <laughs> yeah the processor was an 8-bit intel 8085 with 256k of memory and so actually pretty good specs for the time and as you might suspect the price was quite high. Uh, it started at $9,000. And so that makes it a tough sale for a bunch of people mm-hmm. too. Now, um, it did have built-in basic, which yeah. is neat, but um, it did delay the machine's launch to the market by almost a year, meaning that it went on sale, you know, pretty much in, in 1980, just one month before the IBM PC, which was far less pricey. So the System 23 Data Master kind of failed, but as we'll learn a little bit later on, some of its uh, inroads and innovations did make their way into the IBM PC. Also, the thing weighed 95 pounds. <laughs> wow. That's that's more than your Mac Pro probably, right? And didn't even have any wheels on it. Ah. It looks like a bizarre Lisa. Like, go look at pictures, but it's a bizarre Lisa. Mm-hmm. So, 1980 comes around. IBM is seeing the success of these low-cost machines. They're ending up in small businesses. They're ending up in homes. People are playing games with them. People are programming on them. And so, that summer, at a leadership meeting within IBM, the personal computer market came up. The company's past mm-hmm. failures of the machines we just spoke about, of course, were discussed. And it was suggested that IBM maybe wasn't actually capable of building a machine to compete with Apple, Commodore, and Tandy without outside help. And it came up that, well, maybe uh, a partnership with somebody like Atari takes place. And that way we can use their resources, we can have our technology, and maybe together they could put something out to market. Makes sense, right? So IBM's chairman, Frank Carey, he saw the opportunity in this market, but he believed that IBM could kind of do it by themselves, that they could build their own personal computer. And he put William Lowe in charge of the new project. Um, And Lowe believed that such a product could be released and put together, you know, put together and released in in a year. Crazy fast. (laughs) 
this guy, Lowe, was based out of Boca Raton, Florida. And so that is where he assembled a team of about a dozen engineers to draft a proposal on how to build such a computer that they could release quickly to market, that could be affordable, and that could be aimed at consumers and small businesses. And the project manager, Don Estridge, um, said the following, and this I think is a really, really great quote um, about kind of being on a small team. Quote, if you're competing against people who started in a garage, I think he's referencing yes. Apple, you have to start in a garage. Pretty good. So they, yeah, they separated themselves from this big blue IBM, we're the biggest name in computers and we can afford to do anything. And like, let's get a scrappy project together and try and just pull some off the shelf hardware together into a competent machine that we can compete on the market with. Pretty good idea. Yeah, you would almost think if they hadn't had the blessing of leadership, this was like some sort of skunk's works, like side oh, project. for sure. Which yeah. is pretty cool. Uh, so in just a month, the group had outlined a plan for the personal computer. That plan included ideas on the software for the new machine. And knowing the pain expense, remember we spoke about the 5100, the old machine, it took a year to get basic going on it and it delayed the, the launch. Uh, Jack Sams, who was the project's head of software development, met with two guys you may have heard of, Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, at Microsoft's offices up in Seattle, about using the company's software to power the new machine. But that's basically what we're going to talk about next episode. This episode, we're just talking about hardware, but I just want to tease that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, why did he go to the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers in order to... Well, it was before... All right. Developers, developers. Am I right? It was before that, too. Oh, shoot. Okay. So it's just little baby, little baby Steve Ballmer. Right, right, right. It's a long time ago, man. Okay. This episode of Flashback is brought to you by Clean My Mac X. You should be able to rely on your computer. It should be good enough shape to get you to your goals. It should be fast and organized. And working on it should be a dream. But that's not always the case. And if you're a Mac user, you need to check out Clean My Mac X from MacPaw who are diligent Mac developers and Mac collectors, I should say, that have been in the Mac community for a really long time. And Clean My Mac X is an ideal decluttering app for the Mac. It includes 49 different tools to find and delete invisible computer junk. It helps you tune up Mac OS to run at its maximum speed. You can also use it to organize disk space, showing you large hidden folders. And then you can use that information to free up tons of space so you never run into issues with low storage. And it fights Mac-specific malware and adware protecting your computer. Clean My Mac X is notarized, so it's been checked for security by Apple, and it really stands out on design. It's a beautiful application and makes using these system utilities a real joy. Get Clean My Mac X today with 5% off at macpaw.app slash flashback. This discount is valid for two weeks, so go now to macpaw.app slash flashback for 5% off. Our thanks to Clean My Mac X for the support of the show and Relay FM. Well, we mentioned that the IBM personal computer was built in record time. It's a mistake to think that the process was haphazard or that they didn't think about this stuff because built into IBM was a love of methodical yes. processes, baby. And that was true for the small team in Florida as well. And that's evident 
kind of in the group's choice of CPU. Um, the popular choices of the era, um, again, the ones that were kind of in the, the lower cost machines, some of which had been on the market for a couple of years, uh, th- these choices included the the MOS 6502 and the Z-Log Z80. Um, both of those were 8-bit chips, right? And so this meant that addressing more than 64K of memory just wasn't possible. So IBM turned to this little company called Intel and took advantage of the then new Intel 8088, which is super famous now. Like, that's a historic CPU. The, the 8088 was more expensive. But what was unique about it is that it could address up to one megabyte of RAM, which could give the IBM PC like so much more breathing room in the future than competing machines like the Apple II. The other thing that was kind of special about it was its clock speed. It was clocked at 4.77 megahertz, which meant that the IBM box would also be faster than pretty much all of what was on the market in the early 1980s, at least in in a low cost price point. And kind of by a long shot, too, no? Yeah, the 2GS, uh, Apple 2GS, which came out in 86, so five years later, had a 4 megahertz processor, but Apple downclocked it to 2.8. And the Apple 2E, 1 megahertz processor. Uh, and that was about the same price as the PC. So you really got a lot of performance out of this thing. Okay. The other thing that just occurred to me is when we spoke last time about IBM's mainframe business. We talked about how they would virtualize older systems in new ones. So if you had a 3090, you could run your programs from a 3070 or from a 3060 or whatever. Mm -hmm. This is kind of the same idea. IBM really seemed like they had had really valued longevity in their hardware. And so while the PC Mm -hmm. may have been overbuilt in its day... Uh, and as we'll talk about in a minute, it was actually upgradable in a bunch of different interesting ways. IBM was designing it to be something that a business or a home user could rely on for years and years to come. And that's that's pretty cool. Beyond providing a machine that was already fairly capable, they made another decision that was very much not in IBM's DNA. Um, because IBM was almost... Uh, how we view Apple today, they were very controlling of what went into their machines and um, how their machines were kind of developed and all of this stuff. But but the IBM PC was different in that it kind of allowed for outsourcing of components, which was A, part of the reason that the PC developed so quickly, but B, as we'll learn about later, is one of the reasons why it was so successful because there was just this absolute, you know, avalanche of software and hardware expansion for the IBM PC in particular. Yeah, so by the end of 80, we have this prototype machine. The motherboard only took 40 days to design, super fast. And because yeah. parts were chosen for reliability and fit around this this backplane design that we're going to talk about in a second, uh, IBM actually didn't file any patents on the design because... It was basically all made by third parties. They just went out and bought a bunch of components and put them together and sort of packaged it. And that meant that they didn't really have a lot of their own custom IP in it, which is drastically different to how things are today. Let's talk about the machine itself then, I guess, right? Okay. Starting with the physical design. Steven, how do you think the IBM PC looks? It's of its time, but I don't think it's bad looking necessarily. Yeah. I actually think it's kind of cool. 
it, it doesn't have the wow factor of something like the, the Apple IIc, um, or even frankly the 2GS with kind of the Snow White design language. Um, for whatever it's worth, the 2C was seen by many as kind of a direct response to the IBM PC because, as we'll learn in a minute, it did pretty well. Um, but the the chassis uh, was unique in that it was short, wide, and steel. It was intended to support the weight of a heavy CRT monitor because everyone was putting their monitors and their drives and all sorts of crap on top of their machine. But the front fascia was made out of plastic with this huge opening where one or two, if you were fancy and had money, uh, disk drives could be installed. Um, and then the back right side of the machine had this big red power switch, which looks kind of cool now, frankly. And then the back panel housed a power inlet, keyboard connector, and then a series of slot for expansion carts. And if you look at photos from inside the machine, and we'll talk about why in a minute. It looks more like a modern computer inside than pretty much any other computer of the era, I would say. Oh, yeah. So much about this defined the modern era. That motherboard that took 40 days to design mm-hmm. had five 62-pin expansion slots all attached to an 8-bit I.O. bus going back to the CPU. And the idea of a bus or a- additional cards in a computer, it wasn't new. Uh, other people were doing it. Right. But IBM's implementation was based on the I.O. bus that the company had invented for the System 32 Data Master, that big, heavy 95-pound machine we talked about a few minutes ago. Right. Uh, it used the same physical connector and similar signal protocol and pinout. Uh, IBM called these, quote, I.O. slots. Sounds familiar? Yeah, it sure does. And... Yeah, and they would go on to upgrade this over time. We're going to talk in a future episode about later models, but the PCAT in 84 updated this to a 16-bit bus uh, known as the the ISA bus, Industry Standard Architecture, ISA, ISA bus. Oh, okay. Uh, That led to ATA, XTIDE, PCMCIA. So, like, so many things we know (laughs) in terms of uh, expandability comes from this backplane and its I.O. slots. Okay, Stephen, I want to talk really quickly about physical slots, okay? Because integrated into the steel chassis of the system, the case, were a series of vertical slots that covered, uh, at least they covered access to this kind of internal bus on the motherboard. So if you look at the back of the computer, There's a bunch of vertical slots, and they're covered with little metal panels. And behind those panels, obviously, were the card slots. But when you wanted to add a card into the machine, you would remove the little metal panel. You would insert your card, which had a metal panel of its own, oftentimes with uh, connectors and plugs on the end. And then you would screw through a tab on the bracket, fastening the card into the chassis to prevent it from wiggling around. And so not only did you have an easy way to fasten a card securely into the machine, but because the ports and, and, you know, kind of accessories were frankly built into the card itself, um, you had easy, secure access to everything you needed. Like if you plugged in a, a game controller card, the game port was right on the card. And, uh, this might sound a little familiar, because it is exactly the same <laughs> as modern PC expansion slots. I was going to say, my Mac Pro and my custom-built PC here in my office, Yeah, like, this is how they work. <laughs> it's exactly the same. 
literally how they work. And the IBM PC was kind of the first to to develop the standard. And if you look at these uh, like card slots, the it, like even the design of the tabs, like it is identical. They have not changed. And so I do admit to in the past having built a PC uh, at times besmirching the uh, design of the slots because while they're pretty good, they're not perfect. But next time I run into an issue, I just need to remind myself, hey, you know, this thing is 40 years old. G- give it some slack. Just need the courage to change it, you know? <laughs> That's right. But only on the Mac Pro. It's a headphone jack thing. Okay. You may be thinking, okay, it's 1981, 82, when I get my IBM PC, what can I actually put in these slots? And this right. machine, I mean, it sold very well. Reception was very strong. And so there really was an ecosystem around it that happened very quickly. So you could plug in a couple of different graphics cards. Uh, there was, from IBM, there was a text card and then a graphics card. And you could pick either one, and then your monitor needed to work with it. I mean, display stuff was trickier back then. But there were also sound cards, cards that added mouse support because the thing just came with a keyboard. Uh, expanded memory, mm-hmm. additional serial or parallel ports. So uh, actually kind of famously, the National Weather Service used IBM personal computers and, and their descendants, you know, but later models, mm-hmm. for decades to gather information from weather stations through like serial <laughs> and parallel ports on the back of an IBM personal <laughs> computer. Networking, and then because this was basically a set of open lanes to the CPU, uh, there were a lot of like custom and proprietary cards to use with miscellaneous equipment in places like manufacturing or in the medical field uh, and that sort of thing. Mm. So really everything from like a home user wanting to play games to you're using this to, in like quality assurance in your factory, yeah. uh, the computer could do anything because it was so flexible. That's pretty cool. One problem that, that users did experience pretty quickly is that as there were only five slots, most of them kind of ended up getting filled with essential hardware because you'd have a graphics card. If you wanted a sound card for games and, and if you played games, you definitely wanted a dedicated sound card um, because at the time, if not, uh, sound processing would be offloaded to the CPU through software. You look at something like the Apple II, that's what the Apple II line did forever. And the the comparison of quality in games from the Apple II to something like the Commodore 64 uh, there was no comparison <laughs> because the Commodore had a dedicated processing chip for, for sound. Um, so, so you get a graphics card, maybe a sound card, you get memory expansion, uh, a parallel card, of course, and then your serial card. You're really only left with one open slot. And uh, so this is kind of an issue. Uh, furthermore, there's no hard drive support because there was insufficient power from the stock power supply. But even if you wanted to upgrade the power supply, there was no bio, uh, there was no BIOS expansion um, for uh, read-only memory. And um, both the PC DOS and the BIOS just straight up didn't support hard disks. Now, this was something that was fixed fairly quickly with a the release of the ibm pc xt which was basically just an ibm pc with more lanes um but more interestingly and and this is something that i had really never heard of was the 5161 expansion unit which well it was a pretty basic piece of hardware it was essentially a card that you would plug into your uh, ibm pc and then 
at the back side of the card on the I.O. slot, just like we just talked about, you would use a cable to uh, run data over to a second system chassis. It looked almost like another IBM uh, PC. And inside of that, there was a backplane with more expansion slots and even support for a hard disk with adequate power. Um, so pretty cool. Obviously, this thing did not come super cheap. <laughs> um, and so I, I feel like most people would probably opt for a uh, IBM PC XT. Yeah, if they needed those those extra <laughs> if they needed those extra lanes. But that in theory was a pretty cool addition. Again, it's it speaks to your point of them really wanting this to be a platform and encouraging upgradability and longevity for their products. And if that meant you needed to buy a thing to expand its capabilities, well, it's better than buying a whole new computer. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of this thing. It is in exactly the same case as the PC. So if you just walked by someone's desk, you're like, man, they're baller. They got two computers. Well, one is just a hard drive and a power supply. <laughs> and a bunch of empty card slots. But, you know, external storage in this day wasn't unusual. That's how the Lisa did it, uh, kind of famously with right. like the profile thing that sat on top of it. And mm -hmm. the Apple mm -hmm. II line had, the I think, the Pro Disk line. So, I mean, th this was pretty common. You could also plug in a printer Ooh. that could print in two directions at 80 characters per second. I bet that thing sounded awesome. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and and then we talked. <laughs> yeah, and then we talked about the <laughs> the graphics a second ago. But IBM offered a couple of monitors in the long run. Um, Sixteen colors, two hundred fifty six characters for text applications. Early days, right? But basically, yeah, you could yeah. go to IBM and get the whole thing if you wanted to, or because it was open, you could hook it up to other stuff. They gave you options, uh, and you could also plug in. Uh, multiple memory cards into those slots to increase the memory up to 256k which was a lot in the early 80s a, a yeah. ton i mean by contrast the the what did the commodore 64 was 64k right i think yeah and the original mac was 128 and that was three years later so yep you could really get one of these kind of bare bones and then as your needs grew or your budget allowed, you could upgrade it over time. That's still a hallmark, hallmark of the personal computer industry today, as long as you don't buy a laptop. <laughs> right. Or an Apple computer, unless it's a Mac Pro. In which case you... Which is basically just a PC. A very beautiful PC. <laughs> right, right. So that's, that's the hardware of the IBM personal computer. All right. So now we're doing the software, right? Yeah. Next time we're going to talk about software and uh, IBM's... I would say infamous deal with Microsoft and what that meant. Uh, and then a couple weeks after that, we're going to be talking about some of the later models in the line. So definitely stay tuned. If you want to find links to the stuff we spoke about today, though, head on over to relay.fm slash flashback slash 22 pictures, images. Uh, I definitely recommend checking out the Ars Technica article. They had this great two piece article a few years ago about the the history of the IBM personal computer. That's been very useful in our research. And uh, yeah, go go have fun reading about the IBM PC. Quinn, in the meantime, where can people find you? Yeah, people can find me on the internet or in person, but I prefer the internet. No. Uh, Twitter.com and Instagram.com slash snazzyq. And then on YouTube, you can find me at uh, youtube.com slash snazzy or just Start typing snazzy on YouTube and it'll show up probably. You got a beard. You're talking about computers. It's great. How about you, Steven? Where can people find you and all your happenings? 
I host a bunch of other shows here on Relay FM, Connected and Mac Power Users, the two computer nerdery ones. Go check those out. They're both great. I can endorse them. I'm a listener of both. And I write over at 512pixels.net. In real time, this morning, I just published my MacBook Pro review. So go check that out. Very good. I have not seen that. I'll have to go check it out. Oh, it's good. I did this whole thing where I pretended the 2016 era never happened. And so I reviewed the new one against the original Retina MacBook Pro. That's actually fantastic. (laughs) I was happy with that. (laughs) Let's just erase the last five years, huh? I mean, I'd like to in lots of ways. So Mm -hmm. let's just go Mm -hmm. for it. Uh, I'll throw a link of that in the show notes for people. (laughs) All right, Quinn, I will uh, talk to you in a couple of weeks. All right, Stephen, I'll see you then. Thank you. Bye, y'all.